Maria. Welcome to First Up. This is Ratu, Tuesday, the 31st of May. We're nearly out of May. Nathan Rarere, aho, coming up. Tie down your trampolines and other blustery front is on the way, and Philip Duncan from Weather Watch tells us about that. We will hear about a restaurant where people choose how much they pay for their meals. Sounds good. And the government's put the country's supermarket duopoly on notice. Keep prices down or we will step in. We'll hear from Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis and hear what she thinks about these new rules. If you get a third or even a fourth player to enter into the market, you've suddenly got a range of options for consumers and these players will be forced to compete on price, which is probably the thing that's top of people's list. Maria, welcome to First Up, the 31st of May. Already, Cornathan Rarere, aho. We're going to begin this morning in the United Kingdom, and it's always exciting to say that streets are festooned with bunting, but that's um, that's what's happened. Uh, that's in anticipation of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's jubilee. Joining me now from London is our correspondent. I think she's eligible to play netball for both New Zealand and uh, England. It's a proud New Zealand resident, Ali J. Hello. Hello, Morena. <laughs> Morena, how are you? That's right, okay, let's be professional now. Hey, hey, before we get um, to the, the celebrations here for the Jubilee, wh- why is it, what's the investigation that's been called into the, the Liverpool fans outside the Champions League final in Paris? Why, why is this, this news? What, what's the big story there? So that's right. There's actually more than one investigation being called for or more than one person calling for an investigation. Um, But first, I can set the scene a little bit. So Saturday night just gone was the Champions League final. It's football. Um, Liverpool Football Club were playing Real Madrid at the Stade de France in Paris. And Liverpool have had they've had a really good run, though some fans might not say that, but they won the League Cup, they won the FA Cup, uh, they came second in the Premier League only by one point. So people were, they were really excited about this game, optimistic. Thousands of Liverpool fans had gone to Paris as well. Uh, I was up in Newcastle at the weekend and the pubs were packed. Plenty of really excited Liverpool fans, uh, a few supporting Madrid as well, but mostly Liverpool fans. And that great atmosphere. And so 15 minutes before kickoff, though, the game was delayed. The stadium was looking pretty empty, especially the Liverpool end, and they kept pushing back the start time. So there were these big announcements on screens in the stadium that said, uh, due to the late arrival of Liverpool fans, we're having to push the game back. And they did it um, by 15 minutes and then another announcement. But at the time, if you logged onto Twitter, if you were listening to live radio and TV reports, it turned out that that wasn't really entirely the case. So Liverpool fans were being held outside by French police. Some people said that they'd been there for nearly four hours and there was lots of confusion. Um, French riot police were there as well, using cans of tear gas and pepper spray um, on the crowd. And it was all, I mean, it was a a lot of confusion. And the match then kicked off 36 minutes late. By then, when they showed around the stadium, it was was filling up a bit more. More fans were there. Uh, It was quite a tense game. Liverpool didn't win. It was 1-0 to Real Madrid. Um, But it's kind of after the game where the story changes a little bit. We start to hear a lot more about what happened outside the stadium, why the match was delayed and why there are these um, calls for an inquiry into this. So 
just uh, immediately after the game, UEFA, who are the union, uh, the Union of European Football Associations, the ones who run the Champions League, they immediately came out and said it was the fans' fault that the match was delayed. This was uh, despite kind of reports at the time that there were queues hours before the match. So they released a statement um, that said the turnstiles at the Liverpool end were blocked by thousands of fans who purchased fake tickets that didn't work in the turnstiles. So um, France's Minister of the Interior, Gérald Damanin, tweeted at the time uh, that thousands of British supporters um, turned up without tickets or with fake tickets, um, forced entry, and he said sometimes assaulted the stewards. And he's now, it's later on, he's now come out and said it was actually down to industrial scale organised ticket fraud. So French authorities are saying um, it's due to this. Um, and the French sports minister as well said it was fake tickets uh, initially, but that there were also people from the local area trying to through the doors. But there's been, there's been a lot of criticism here for the style of policing though and questions asked about why fans were forced into small areas made to wait for such a long time I mean especially from Liverpool fans and media in Liverpool people are asking why are fans being blamed for this is this the case why were police so heavy-handed I mean there are stories coming out of um families who've gone to watch the match, children who were caught up in it and who were pepper sprayed by French police. There are also, um, there's a story of uh, Andy Robertson, who's actually a, a Liverpool player, and he, he played in the match, he was playing the match, and he said, uh, he tweeted saying he'd given a ticket to a friend, and his friend was told it's a fake and denied entry to the stadium. Yeah. So there are lots of questions being asked. Liverpool Football Club have called on UEFA for a full investigation. The mayor of Liverpool, who was at the match as well, released a statement saying uh, the French police's treatment of fans was brutal. She's called for an investigation. Um, Britain's Minister for Sport as well, Nadine Dorries, she's asked for this investigation as well. All in all, it kind of, I mean, Liverpool also had um, the team had uh, coach parade through Liverpool to kind of celebrate the wins that they've had. But this, I mean, it's left a really sour taste in the mouth of most fans and yeah. most watchers, especially as you hear these stories of people kind of caught the crush, um, gone there to see this game, the you know, the end of the Champions League. And it's really it's it's taken the shine it's taken the shine off and a lot of people are asking a lot of questions about it. Yeah, but a rough weekend for the Carabao Cup champion fans. Hey, uh, but you've got a big weekend coming up, Queen's Jubilee weekend. Uh, I heard festooned with bunting. That's been uh, that's been bandied about. <laughs> uh, tell me about what what goes on. What what's happening for the Queen's Jubilee weekend? Well, just just one or two things. No, it's gone. It has gone absolutely mad. So it's seventy years on the throne for Queen Elizabeth. This is uh, being celebrated in in the UK this weekend, and there is a lot of stuff going on. I can tell you that right now, as I look out the window, it's grey, it's raining, it's extremely cold. But the plan is for garden parties, lunches, celebrations. Apparently, eighty five thousand people have signed up to say they'll be hosting or taking part in a in a jubilee themed party and you have to sign up also to register a street party too uh, and 16,000 people have have done that walking around i mean you can see the bunting you can see these posters uh, i read um, the 
the iconic telephone boxes. I've seen a couple of them where local schools have taken over and filled them with um, pictures that the children have done and paintings celebration. Uh, Morrison's Supermarket as well is selling a special Clarence the Corgi cake, which is a Swiss roll covered in chocolate and sprinkles uh, with the face of a corgi on the end of it as well. They've also what I think is amazing is put out a disclaimer that they don't know if the Queen has a corgi called Cecil or called Clarence, <laughs> but they called it this one. You guys, um, you, you love putting faces into food, Ellie. You love it. You put it in your luncheon sausage rolls and you've gone now with a, what is it, a Clar- Clarence the... Clarence the Corgi. Hey, we're going to jump out Clarence of here. Ellie, lovely to hear your voice. Um, look, that's all that's going on there. Queen's Jubilee weekend. And uh, we'll catch up again with uh, Ellie J next week here at First Up. Oh, oh, that was lovely to hear her voice. Uh, of course, Ellie J, who uh, left us uh, last week to head back home to the UK. Uh, first up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Raddity. It's uh, 5.13, should you be listening live. It's any time you want if you're on the podcast, by the way. Uh, keen for your feedback, what do you do to commemorate Queen's birthday weekend? Have you ever done anything in your household to, to do this in New Zealand, or are you going to do anything to commemorate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee? Or uh, send us in 2101, the best thing about Britain. There you go. Best thing about Britain if you haven't got one of those. Okay, um, let's head uh, to Japan now, where the former leader of the Japanese Red Army has been freed after serving a 20-year sentence. Fusako Shigenobu, who's now 76, evaded capture for decades before being arrested in Osaka in the year 2000. Her once-feared group had aimed to provoke a global socialist revolution through high-profile acts of terror. I discussed the news with our correspondent in Tokyo, Chris Gilbert. The Japanese Red Army was a guerrilla group, and quite a violent guerrilla group actually in the 70s and the 80s, that fought in support of a free Palestine. They were a pro-Palestinian movement. Mm. Um, she was released from jail in Akashima Medical Facility, a correctional facility here in Tokyo, a few days ago, welcomed by her supporters and her daughter outside. It is the end of her 20-year sentence. Her political activism, I guess you could say, uh, started when she travelled to Lebanon in 1971. Uh, she had been part of the tumult in the Tokyo universities and uh, in the 60s and the 70s against the Vietnam War and against the presence of the US Army in Japan. Once she went to the Middle East, she's co-founded this group, the Japanese Red Army, which in the subsequent 15 to 20 years carried out hijackings, hostage takings, all kinds of violent attacks, including the 1972 machine gun and grenade on the Tel Aviv airport. There was a takeover of the U.S. consulate in Kuala Lumpur in 1975. There was a bombing of a U.S. military facility in 1988. And after that, it kind of faded from the public view a little bit. And we didn't hear much from Ms. Shigunobu very much after that. She did kind of go to ground until 2000 when she resurfaced again in Tokyo and was uh, kind of promptly arrested. She and sentenced to 20 years in prison. She disbanded the Red Army from, pres- uh, from prison in 2001. And uh, in 2008, she was diagnosed with cancer. And she has expressed since leaving prison at the people who have been hurt in the army's efforts to fight for a free Palestine. The Palestinian youth movement, however, have welcomed her release, saying she is a, a lifelong comrade of the Palestinian struggle, despite you know the regret that she feels about the Red Army's past actions. Ah, so she's at, look, let's um, tell me about 
something different. What about the Prime Minister? Because that was quite heavy. You just told me about the Prime Minister taking rides on trains. What's this? You know, I like to balance it up a little bit. Yeah. We'll do some heavy stuff with some hijackings, <laughs> and then we'll do the Prime Minister t- taking a little ridey ride on a very fast train. But no, yeah. the Prime Minister, Mag Lev, stands for, or it doesn't stand for, but it means magnetic levitation. Tinkansen means bullet train. Together, it means very, very fast train. And that is what they're currently building from Tokyo to uh, Nagoya at the moment, and then on to Osaka eventually. It's called the Chuo Shinkansen, and they want to open it by 2027. This thing, Nate, is going to go up to 500 kilometers an hour. Wow. 500. That is fast, mate. Like the normal Shinkansen, the normal bullet trains go up to 340, and that feels fast. Especially if you've got a, a like a, a westerly blowing across the country, that thing goes rocking. It's a bit scary. But 500 k's an hour, the prime minister apparently said it's stable after riding it. And uh, this, is, uh, this is very reassuring. Probably a PR move because Shizuoka Prefecture, the maglev is going to go through Shizuoka, and their local government is currently holding up the environmental assessment because – Part of the line it shares because of uh, water concerns about the environment, uh, the impact that the maglev train is going to have on the water um, in that area. So maybe like when I put the maglev in the news, the local Shizuoka government to hurry things along there. And we were all thinking over here in Japan that we'd probably see a 2027 maglev train before we saw tourists back in Japan. But apparently not. The borders are coming open again. I say coming open, creaking open slightly ever more from June. Mm-hmm. You can finally get yourself to Shinjuku Nate for some karage, yeah, but man. you're going to have to do it as part of a tour group. So you're going to have to follow that little lady with the flag oh, around. It's going to say the know, flags. Have... Yes, I need the flag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to have to buy a pair of zip-off pants and a cargo vest with like 100 <laughs> pockets on it. Yeah. You're going to have to have like a four foot lens dangling around your neck as you bump into everyone that you go past. So, tour, tour groups are mandatory if you want to be a tourist in Japan from June 10th for the time being. PCR tests at the airport, gone. Mandatory vaccinations, gone. You're still going to need that 72 hour pre departure test, that negative piece of paper. But tourists from 98 green lit, quote, safe countries, and New Zealand is one of them, will be allowed in as part of tour groups. That is Chris Gilbert, our correspondent in Japan. It's 19 past five and Nathan Rarity, you're with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, we discuss the government's new rules for supermarkets and also the wild weather because apparently more of it's on the way. Philip Duncan from Weather Watch tells us what it is and where it is. Nelson's council will re-evaluate its plans for a new $46 million Riverside library after it was found to be vulnerable to flooding. The, vi- uh, the library is set to be built alongside the Maitai River. Uh, but recent uh, figures from the Sea Rise program show that the sea level in Nelson is rising faster than expected due to land subsidence. Samantha G has more. The Maitai River winds through central Nelson and is a popular spot for those who work and live in the coastal city. The library has been proposed as a major asset in the Riverside Precinct development and a modern hub for the community. Nelson City Councillor Rachel Sanson has long been concerned about the development being in a vulnerable location, where it's at risk of coastal inundation, river flooding and liquefaction. She says the recent sea rise data has serious implications. I think that a reasonable person would question 
the proposed project in its current location and in my view I think that we should pause and reassess the proposed site in the context of the new data. The council voted last year to go ahead with the preferred Riverside location, over refurbishing the existing library or building elsewhere. Rachel Sanson says the library will be a game changer for the community and she wants it to last. There is just such incredible potential for this, but I also think that we have an immense responsibility with the level of investment that is being proposed that we should be seriously assessing alternative sites that we know are going to be resilient for generations to come. There were more than 300 submissions to the Council on the Library Redevelopment during its long-term plan consultation. More than a third of submitters didn't support the Riverside option and cited cost and potential flood risk as their biggest concerns. Zero Carbon Nelson Tasman has also raised concerns about the site, saying it would rule out managed retreat and other adaptation measures. But Nelson City Council Chief Executive Pat Doherty is confident. He says the new library has been engineered to withstand the impacts of climate change. It would remain high and dry for the next century and be the best civic building Nelson has ever seen. I am confident that we can make a case or demonstrate that that library can still be built on that site and get 100 years under the worst case scenario at the moment. But what I can't put myself in the position of is deciding what the councils would do with that information. The council is rerunning the modelling for the library site with the C-Rise data and will consider the findings in the next few months. More than $5 billion worth of property across the region is expected to be affected by a 1.5 metre sea level rise in the next 100 years. Council climate change manager Rachel Pemberton says from next month the council will be talking to the community about the impact. The objective for that engagement is to understand what the community wants to achieve for adapting our, our coast and also to present the types of solutions that are available for, for climate change. The Council is waiting for New Zealand's first National Adaptation Plan to be released in August before it tackles measures to mitigate the effects of climate change in the region. Samantha G. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Ah, oh, yes indeed. This is the day of our life, the 31st of May, 1982. People went, have you heard that song on the radio? It goes digga digga digga, and then it goes... And then it... And then it goes... Have you heard it? It's awesome. It's called Eye of the Tiger. 1982 was when we all first did that, because Rocky Three was in the movie theatres as well. Gee, they could run slow-mo up a beach in those days. That's how long this song's been a part of your life <laughs> since 1982. Finding Nemo, the movie, is 19 years old today. And as we have a look at uh, people that were born on this day, John Bonham, he could wheel. Uh, Led Zeppelin, of course, uh, the drummer there, born on this day in 1947, uh, no longer with us. Let's have a look at some of the birthdays. Stephen McIver, Patararu's finest, Sky TV's man of everything, 57 years old today. Jimmy Cliff, oh yeah, 78 years old. Jim Bolger, the 35th Prime Minister of New Zealand, 87 today. And Clint Eastwood, 
is 92 and has looked 92 since 1992. So there we go. Uh, on this day in 1985, there were tornadoes in the United States and Canada. How many? Oh, 41 of them in one day. Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York and Ontario were all hit by tornadoes. 41 of them in one day. 76 people died. Usain Bolt ran really fast on this day in 2008. He ran a world record 100 metres in 9.72 seconds. It was probably just all down to fitness and stretching everybody get in there and get it done and on this day in 2017 one of the most famous tweets of all time was sent out and you're going oh shut up about tweets none of this one you want to remember about it said this despite the constant negative press called fefe the tweet was sent by US President Donald Trump. About five hours later, it was deleted. And then uh, the White House press secretary, remember that guy, Sean Spicer? He was asked about it by the by the press. And his answer was, well, the president and a small group of people know exactly what he meant. It's then being explained. There you are. It's 528. It's business. It's business time. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business, it's A lot of people say the only thing missing from the uh, Rocky Three montage uh, where they're running up the, the beach in singlets is Giles Beckford. Uh, but he's with us uh, right now. Kia ora, Giles. How are you? I don't wear singlets. It's no, too it's... warm. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should mention Kofefe uh, yeah. from uh, President Trump. One of the big banks in the U.S., set up, created a Kofefe index. Uh, and the index was to measure every time Donald Trump spoke to measure the move in financial markets because sometimes he'd say something and yeah. stocks would be sold. Another time the dollar would fall, interest rates would rise or stocks would rise. Um, and it was quite interesting that this was their own volatility index Courtesy of Donald Trump, the Kofefe. Yeah, yeah the, the old Kofefe. Um, how much is Kofefe at the supermarket? Is it going to stay cheaper? I guess? Uh, well, it depends whether you want instant or you want to go and actually grind it yourself, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, no pun intended. Um, I think we'll have to say that uh, we'll suspend judgment on these uh, measures the government is taking. The devil will be in the details, especially in that code of conduct. Uh, the good thing is that it is mandatory. But I have to say that uh, to go back to a line from Yes Minister, there is the appearance of activity over achievement uh, about this uh, announcement. Uh, <laughs> May I say that because uh, way back last year when the Commerce Commission was holding the hearings uh, into the study and looking at all the submissions, the supermarket chains had virtually given away all these issues already. So they accepted a code of conduct, but they, they actually wanted it to be uh, voluntary. Uh, but they're happy there. They were happy to accept... Um, you know, not land banking anymore, not putting uh, various uh, rules and restrictions on what people could do with blocks of land nearby to stop uh, a competitor setting up. So it's sort of like the low-hanging fruit, um, and I hate to disappoint people, but I'm not sure that it will result in markedly lower food prices, if that's what people are expecting, and I'm not expecting that it will magically bring in 
a big third operator to compete with Woolworths uh, or Countdown as they uh, trade, uh, trade mm. as here and foodstuffs. We'll wait and see. I might be wrong. Interesting. One of the people, one of the companies that's been touted as a, should we say, part of the competition to the big two, uh, it's an Auckland firm called Soupy. Um, it's basically, they call themselves a grocery alternative, but, you know, they do food deliveries and the like. Uh, they've been looking to raise money of late. Uh, they actually say they don't think that it will uh, do anything for competition. If anything, it will give the duopoly more power. So there's one of the potential uh, competitors, supposed competitors, um, already being a little on the sceptical side. Yeah, Giles, thank you uh, very much for your time. That's well, maybe Subi sets up physical stores. Might be a good way they could they could even try that. I don't know. You can hear more from the B business team here uh, on Morning Report at ten to seven. Let's have a look and see what your New Zealand dollar is out there buying. It is buying sixty five point five seven US cents, ninety one point two two Australian cents, sixty point eight five Euro cents, fifty one point seven nine British pence, four point three seven yuan, eighty three point six three Japanese yen, four. 41.82 Russian rubles and 10.14 Swazi Lilangjinis. Uh, just having a look through some of your feedback this morning, I asked, um, do you celebrate, um, you know, Queen's birthday? Is it a traditional thing we do? Because I was trying to figure out if we do or not. Uh, and then I said, hey, what, what do you got there? Um, best things about Britain uh, then. Jan says, kia ora Nathan, best thing about Britain is its proximity to Paris. Okay, <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it is. It's quite nice, nice thing to get in there. Another one says Britain rhymes with kitten, so that's good. Uh, Luke says if the climate emergency is being taken seriously, should we expect efforts to distinguish the numerous burning coal mines on the west coast? Some have burnt for over a hundred years now. That's Luke and Blackball, um, and Link and Southland says isn't Fairfair Boris Johnson's middle name? Look it up. Okay. <laughs> I like that. I like every tweet and text and that finishes with look it up. We will. We'll look it up. Thank you very much for that. Here's a cool thing. Everybody Eats is a not-for-profit charity which takes donated would-be uh, food that would be going to waste and then turns it into tasty three-course meals. Operating thanks to a large team of volunteers, Everybody Eats began as a weekly pop-up in St Kevin's Arcade on Auckland's Karangahapia Road with a rotating roster of highly regarded chefs from around Tamaki Makoto offering their services each Monday night. The pay-as-you-feel movement has grown, with permanent sites now operating in Unihanga and also in Wellington. After almost five years at the K-Road site, reporter Leonard Powell went to speak to founder Nick Loosley about why they're moving on from their original spot. After pumping out close to 38,000 three-course meals thanks to the help of over 1,000 volunteers, Everybody Eats is set to focus their attention on their full-time sites. And we're currently looking at a couple of different sites um, to open up later this year. You know, we're a small charity at the moment. We want to grow. Um, St Kevin's Arcade, you know, at its peaks doing 350 people on a Monday night and it's a huge effort. I mean, it's not your, your space, your equipment, etc. It becomes, yeah, really, really tough. Despite the hospitality struggles through the pandemic, Everybody Eats has continued to grow, adding a permanent Wellington site in 2020 that is open three nights per week. Full-time restaurants are great for us. Um, we can kind of create the space, we can you know, get the equipment that we need to do what's quite a unique and novel style of restaurant. Um, Onihong has been um, an interesting case for us because it opened four months before COVID, so... 
what we know of that site is how it operates through a very, very odd time in this country's history um, and, and also in the history of hospitality, um, an industry that's been hugely affected by COVID. But Nick says things would never have got off the ground without the support of Samir Allen at Jamaisi Street. We were totally humbled to be um, offered the opportunity to work at what was a relatively new restaurant then, Jamaisi Street, and work alongside Samir and his team and his family. Like They were just incredibly supportive for us. So accommodating, Samir cooked for the first three or four weeks and brought his whole team to help his volunteers. Uh, And ever since then, he's been a massive supporter of Everybody Eats. He's been cooking sort of once every two months. We get in there and we feed 300-plus people a week with volunteers who aren't trained hospitality professionals. Like, that's a big ask for a top restaurant to give up their equipment to let 50 individuals come in and just have a go. Um, so, yeah, we can't thank them enough. We wouldn't exist without Samir and his team and, and the support they gave us. So it was a massive learning curve and why we're, why we're here today. I had a work colleague who said he hadn't been along because he's, he's like, oh, no, that's for people who can't afford it. Like, what's your message for... Because it's for everybody eats, right? That's within the name. Yeah, that's probably our biggest challenge is, um, is the fact that we do provide a lot of meals for um, the vulnerable community and a lot of the interpretation of that concept from what we'd call paying customers uh, is that they're taking food away from they tend to say a homeless person um, which is very rarely the case and actually they couldn't be further from the truth if we don't have paying customers then we're unable to feed vulnerable people because we do rely on some koha um, and we do receive koha from from the vulnerable community as well which is really really positive but the whole concept stands on the whole community coming together and part of the magic of Everybody Eats is that we're using food as this tool to break down social barriers and give people from different walks of life uh, a good reason to come together and get to know one another and have conversations. Everybody Eats is largely run from the help of volunteers and Nick encourages anybody interested in helping out to get in touch. That was Everybody Eats founder Nick Loosely speaking with our reporter Leonard Powell. Well, uh, yesterday, woof, uh, yesterday morning in particular saw some severe weather warnings issued across much of the North Island with some areas seeing up to 150 millimetres of rain. Doesn't look like it's over just yet though. Joining us now is Philip Duncan from Weather Watch. Kia ora, Philip, how are you? Good morning, I'm very good, thank you Nathan, how are you? I'm pretty good my friend. Um, is What is in store? Who's getting all the free trampolines blown over from the neighbours? <laughs> well, um, we've got two different storms. Um, storm 1 basically tracked uh, down through the Tasman Sea yesterday and that's the reason why we did see those strong winds and those big downpours and isolated thunderstorms. We've got another storm coming in, it's um, coming in from Australia and they will cross paths, these two systems. And the next one that's coming through will sort of kick in later today with uh, strong north to northwesterly winds. And then this system peaks tomorrow. So more heavy rain on the western side of the country, more heavy rain for the top of the country where it's welcome, um, and, and more of those isolated thunderstorms and strong winds. This system will last right through until the start of the long weekend, the second storm. So it's going to be with us for a few days with plenty of wind and rain as it unravels over the top of the country. Ugh. Okay, so uh, then people have heard this thing going, oh, heck, I've got to make sure my gutters are cleared and all that. What what parts of the country, at your best guess, in the next few days, should probably take this morning to head out and you know just make sure that everything is, is cleared out in your drain systems? Well, the worst winds will be around the South Island, Cook Strait, and the lower North Island. So the further north and northeast you are, so 
you know, Northland and Gisborne, those areas are not going to be as windy, although they're still in for some um, gust to gale force. Worst winds will definitely be around the South Island, though, and the eastern side. Heaviest rain, that'll be on the western side of the country, all the way from Fiordland and the Nelson Ranges, Taranaki up to the top of the country. Thunderstorms will be scattered. They'll be all over the place on the western side, mostly. And then you've got the dangerous beach conditions and swells, which will be driven by the storm uh, in the lower part of the Tasman Sea. So that means the western side of the country most exposed to that. So it's a really typical grunty late autumn storm. Mm. Um, Philip, we're not in the scare business here or anything like that, but should should anyone be perhaps worried about flooding? Um, I'm, I'm not so worried about flooding with this. I mean, it's a... It's a really big storm in the sense of the air pressure. Yesterday's low, the, the, the air pressure will be one for the history books. It was down to nine uh, five nine hectopascals. It might have gone lower than that. Um, and this storm coming through later tonight and tomorrow will be nine sixty. These are really low air pressure values, so that means the air is in. Uh, you know, there's a lot of instability around. The winds will be the biggest issue, I think, um, along the eastern side of the country and inland areas. But it's, it's sort of the usual gales that we get that cause a few power cuts, a few trees down. People just need to be sort of sensible about the conditions around them and just be aware that this, this system will be lingering around for a few days. But I am hoping that the, the rain will be heaviest on the West Coast where it can cope with it and it will be fanned out over a few days as well. So that's another positive. Now, um, you said that what this, this clears up hopefully by the start of the weekend or, or during the weekend. Like, what sort of weekend are we looking at? Because it's a long weekend, we've all just realised in the office. No, no, it is. Eh? It's one yeah. of those things that just sort of comes out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> Friday is still unsettled. Friday's the southwest day. That's when it gets colder. So you know, parts of Southland are going to be, you know, daytime highs in the single digits. But as we get towards the weekend, high pressure rolls in from Australia, so there'll be a few frosts around, some light winds, dry weather, but it may not last the whole weekend. So usually our long weekends are split with one half not bad and the other half terrible, or the other way around. So I think this weekend, Queen's birthday Monday has got the better chance of being wet and perhaps windy in some areas than, than the Saturday or Sunday do. Ah, uh. Wonderful. Okay, there's, there's, at least there's a little bit in there as well. Break out your, your rain jackets, folks. They haven't had a decent go for ages. It's that bit, Philip, you know, where you head to the cupboard and get them out. You're like, oh, it's a bit musty, which yeah. is quite a, quite a good sport way to be. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you on that one. <laughs> cool. Hey, thank you very much. There he is from Weatherwatch. That is uh, Philip Duncan. And if you missed any of that, just head to his website and have a look. Eighteen and a half to six. I'm Nathan Radere. You're with first up here on RNZ National. Still to come, the government's put the country's supermarket duopoly on notice. We will hear the thoughts on that from National's deputy leader Nicola Willis, and also John Duffy from Consumer New Zealand. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Just before we head to the morning report team, I was asking this morning mm-hmm. uh, for things here, and I've got this best things about Britain. Are you ready for this, uh, I'm Vicky? Standing uh, by. Um, Florence Pugh. Uh, the actress. Here's one. The best thing about Britain is the Queen talking about poverty while bedecked in jewels and sitting on a golden throne. Richard says all Republicans should have to work this Queen's birthday. Royalists are allowed the day off. Um, Clever. The best thing about Britain is it's so far away because they manufacture cluster munitions. And Derek says the, the departure gate at Heathrow before I boarded the Air New Zealand jet that brought me to New Zealand 27 years ago. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. That is very cool. Welcome aboard, kind sir. We're impressed with that. (laughs) Best best thing about Britain for me is all the architecture and how old it is. And it's 
you know, British TV. It's fantastic. <laughs> You're right. UK TV's bloody good. There we go. The Chase. I just thought more people would, would write the chase. There we go. And TV themes like this. Because when we play that, I get to say, here's Susie Ferguson from Morning Report. Kia ora, how are you? Oh, I'm well. Kia ora, how are you? Very good. Best things about Britain? I knew you were going to ask me, and I was sitting here thinking, oh God, I don't know, I don't know. Best things about Britain? The Ferguson, the Ferguson clan, clan obviously, Ferguson. Obviously clan Ferguson. Um, there we go. Scones and, and jam and cream. There we go. Scones and jam and cream. Uh, creams. You're cream, a scones, cream. not a scones. You're a scones, not a scones. Oh, yes. my Yes, and it's quite variable around the country, that one, but I say scone. Good on you. There we go. Because that's the right way to say it. It is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. What do you got happening on the show today? Well, we're going to be talking about the shake-up of the supermarket duopoly that the government is beginning. Uh, we'll be talking to the acting Prime Minister, Grant Robertson, about this and how long we're all going to have to wait until those grocery prices come down. Also, Jacinda Ardern getting ready to meet the US President at the White House. And China, it seems, falling short on its big for a big Pacific deal covering trade and security. It is all coming up after six o'clock. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, the government yeah, has introduced a raft of new rules for supermarkets in an attempt to counter those soaring food prices that they're charging us. So here we go. This follows the Commerce Commission's market study into New Zealand supermarkets, which found that competition in the grocery sector is not working well for consumers. The changes announced yesterday by the Minister of Commerce and Consumer Affairs, David Clark, include compulsory unit pricing on groceries and an introduction of an industry regulator. Dr. Clark says that a supermarket's hold over wholesalers makes it difficult for would-be competitors to offer any competition. So I asked the Chief Executive of Consumer NZ, John Duffy, whether these measures will actually have any real impact for shoppers. Yeah, look, I think this is a really good thing. It's not going to have an immediate impact, but over the longer term, it is putting us on a pathway to increase competition in the grocery sector. And when you increase competition... Good things follow. So in in theory, prices drop, selection increases, and companies are forced to compete and innovate, improve service to win your custom. I, I know there's the feeling like, yeah, but if we had another player in the market, that would be good and that would bring the price down. So, I mean, can those real changes happen without a third competitor in the market? Not really. It would always be forced or kind of non-genuine competition, which is really what we've got now. We've got you know, two giants who are quite happy sitting across from each other and not p- competing particularly hard. And, and that's what the commission, the Commerce Commission found in its, in its market study. If you get a third or even a fourth player to enter into the market, you've suddenly got a range of options for consumers and they can pick and choose. And, and these players will be forced to compete on price, which is probably the thing that's top of people's list that they want from the supermarkets at the moment. Yeah, actually, it just it just occurred to me as we we're talking. How do we end up in this situation? <laughs> well, it's an interesting it's an interesting story. It's, it actually goes back about twenty years, yes. where um, Progressives, which was the company that has subsequently become Woolworths, which is the company that owns Countdown and Fresh Choice, hmm. they were allowed by the Commerce Commission at the time to purchase Food Town, which was the last of the many many supermarkets we used to have in New Zealand. 
that was the last brand standing and that was a that's what was called a three to two merger mm. so they were allowed to make that purchase pushed us down to a duopoly and really all the bad things that we've seen since the the lack of competition the the high prices the high profitability of the supermarkets have all really stemmed from that moment oh and here we are but i mean like you say there is light at the end of the tunnel it was nice to hear you hear you say that is a good thing so we've got that to hang on to can you tell us what what in your opinion needs to be done to fix this problem what, what what's more things that that could that could go because do you think this really goes far enough I think it well it sets us in the on the right path. Okay. I think the Commerce Commission's original recommendations, which have largely been accepted by the government, but with two kind of key key deviations, most of the recommendations the commission made are really good. So they're they're going to set up a grocery regulator to keep an eye on the supermarkets, which is fantastic. There's going to be a, a code of conduct that regulates how supermarkets need to behave with suppliers. Uh, there's going to be things like mandatory unit pricing to kind of cut through the deceptive and confusing marketing techniques that uh, supermarkets use when they're advertising specials. So lots of really good stuff. But what the Commerce Commission's report did very well in identifying, but not particularly well in kind of recommending a resolution for, was the wholesale market. So Hmm. the Commission's report said, hey, we need new players into the market, as we've discussed, to increase competition. But no one's going to enter the market unless they can get their hands on groceries to, whole, to to retail, right? So they need to be able to buy goods at wholesale. And the existing players, Foodstuffs and, and Woolworths, have that wholesale level of the market tied up. So any new entrant, it would be very difficult to acquire domestically a full range to to give people a, you know, a, a full competitor to, to the existing supermarkets. So... What they've done is they've said, all right, supermarkets, you need to open up your wholesale supply too and supply any new entrants or existing players in the market, which are small players, Mm. on fair terms. And actually, we're also going to regulate to make sure that you do that because while you've said that you'll do it, I guess the subtext is that the government doesn't necessarily trust that that will happen or trust that just the promise from the, the existing supermarkets will be enough to encourage a new entrant to come in because actually if you're reliant on your closest competitors to supply your wholesale, it might make it a pretty daunting task to enter that market. That's the Chief Executive of Consumer NZ, John Duffy. I also discussed the new supermarket rules with National Party Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. But first, I asked what she made of last night's One News Colmar Brunton poll, they love their polls, uh, which has laboured down uh, to two points to 35% support and National on 39 needing the Māori Party to form a government. So is it time for National to cosy up to Te Pāti Māori? Oh, look, we're still so many months from the election, Nathan, so we don't read too much into any one poll. I think the thing I would take from it is that we're continuing to have good levels of support, and it's clear that the government hasn't gained any support following their budget. Look, our job is to work really hard over the next few months to present good ideas to New Zealand for the challenges that are facing New Zealanders and to earn more support. The the Commerce Commission supermarket report. Then, do you think that's a good, uh, you know, that, that that's that's a good thing that's happened? Well, we've welcomed moves to increase competition in the supermarket sector. We want to see a properly competitive grocery sector in New Zealand. 
Uh, and so the, the, these steps are in the right direction. Of course, there are still some outstanding challenges. You know, ultimately, we want a third player to enter the market. So we need to see that the planning laws in terms of the Resource Management Act allow them to access sites uh, and that there aren't any other barriers such as in the Overseas Investment Act because ultimately for us to have a properly competitive grocery sector we need a third entrant don't we? Yeah and a third entrant that's around a lot I know a lot of people are excited about Costco but there's only one shop and it's right out the end of the Northwestern Motorway in Auckland so. Yeah well lucky for the West Aucklanders I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of us would probably like it too or you know Aldi I think anyone who's been to Australia will yeah. know that that's had a really um, important impact in that market in terms of bringing prices down. So wouldn't it be great if they chose to come here? Well, I saw um, both supermarkets making at least a million dollars profit every day. What, what's a reasonable daily profit for a supermarket to make under the current economic climate, do you reckon? Well, look, it's not for me to judge, but what the Commerce Commission did say very clearly in their report is that the supermarkets are benefiting from the duopoly structure. So as I say... Uh, we're pro-competition in the National Party. We want to see good steps that ensure it's a properly competitive market. And I know, talking to New Zealanders, that prices at the supermarket are really part of the sharp bit of the cost of living crisis that our country is currently facing. And it's hitting hard. Uh, I know a lot of families are having to make difficult decisions in the supermarket aisle. I spoke to someone the other day, uh, and she calls it the checkout of doom because she looks the other way when the teller tells her how much the grocery bill is because it seems to be more each week and I know that that's uh, causing concern for a lot of people. Yeah, uh, we're not going to see a capsicum until probably November, I think, in this house. We're, we're doing without those and the little tomatoes that we all love so much, but we're carrying on. Hey, um, how concerned are you about China's increasing presence through the Pacific? Well, look, I think that things seem to have changed really rapidly and what we will all be concerned about is the militarisation of the Pacific. I think we can all accept that different countries will take an interest in having relationships with other countries, but what we wouldn't want to see is the Pacific becoming a theatre for militarisation. And what we also want to see is that New Zealand's relationship with our Pacific neighbours remains really strong and we're aware of what's going on for them. And you will have noticed the Australian Foreign Minister was straight on a plane and over there this week. Uh, and we look a bit conspicuous in our absence, I think. I, you know, I, I have a, an interesting thought on this because I was trying to imagine in my head, I'm thinking, has China ever landed a troop on, on you know, the Solomon Islands or anything? Because I know we did. I know Australia did. I know the United States did. And, you know, I was just kind of thinking about why would China be appealing to them? And, and I guess I'm just thinking, I think, that is this not a hint to ourselves and Australia, who should have been doing more through the Pacific, that perhaps these nations, you know, they're allowed to choose for themselves who they're mates with. Maybe we, it's, it's maybe we actually haven't been doing enough over the last 20, 30 years. Well, all sovereign nations do get to decide the relationships that they want to have. And I think New Zealanders share a view that these this is our Pacific family. Uh, we really feel that these countries are very strong friends and neighbours. Many uh, people from these countries live in New Zealand. Uh, and so what we want to see is those relationships continue to strengthen. And I hope that our foreign minister and our government are looking at the current situation and thinking about what they can do to redouble New Zealand's efforts to strengthen those relationships for the future. Yeah, I mean, Winston Peters said at the weekend that he thought that Nanaia Mahuta had been missing in action, and, and I can hear that in, in your comments as well. You, you feel so. What, what should she be doing? 
Well, I think face-to-face diplomacy is really important. I think we've all experienced that Zoom can only take you so far. Uh, I think the power of jumping on a plane, meeting with people in person, uh, that's a really important aspect of strengthening relationships, and I'd hope to see her doing that in the next little while. Yeah. Um, finally, I know you've you've had, um, it's a bit of a, a rough week for you there. You've had a few COVID positive cases there for your family. So we, we send our, our love to the to the kids and that and make sure you guys are okay. Now, which is quite a good time to ask you this. Are you clear on the COVID isolation rules that, that we've all been asked to do? Like, what should you do if you think you have COVID again within 90 days? Do you think, do you think those are laid out there clear enough to everybody? Well, I know that anyone who has had COVID would go online and read the instructions from the Ministry of Health to make sure they're following them. It's my understanding that once you've had COVID, the isolation rules don't apply in the same way to you as they do to those who haven't had it before. And certainly at the end of my isolation period, I'll be checking the rules very carefully to make sure I'm complying with them. That's the Deputy Leader of the National Party, Nicola Willis. If you'd enjoy, if you have enjoyed this morning's show... We've got it for you, all prepared to listen to again. My highlights, you can go through and go, oh, I love that bit. There you go. We haven't got any DVD commentary of like a director or anything, but it's called The Podcast. It's out there wherever you get your podcasts from. It'll be up in a little bit. We've got to, got to get out the whip and go, Katrina, get it uploaded. Here we go. We do that. We send her off to the computer to do that where it's uploaded for you. Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin. From all of us here at First Up, have yourselves a wonderful day. We'll be in your ears anytime you like on the podcast or live from 5am up or